and welcome. I'm Frank Lavallo, and this is Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. For each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. This episode of Novel Conversations is about the novel The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy by Lawrence Stern. And I'm joined by our Novel Conversations readers, Elizabeth Flood and Phil Setnick. Elizabeth, Phil, welcome. Thanks, Frank. Thank you. And now, on to our show. Before we start our conversation about today's novel, The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, let me read a quick summary, although I guess summary is really not a good word for a novel that encompasses over 600 pages. Our novel was written by Lawrence Stern and published in a series of installments between 1759 and 1767. Tristram Shandy is both the fictionalized author of The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy and the main character, whose conception, birth, christening, and circumcision form one of the major sequences of the narrative. The adult Tristram Shandy relates certain aspects of his family history, including some events that took place before his birth. In the life and opinions of Tristram Shandy, his opinions we get in abundance, especially those about writers and writing and lawyers. Actual details of his life, though, eh, we get much less. Phil, before we start our discussion of Tristram Shandy the character, I want to talk about the form of the novel itself. This is not a very literally structured novel, is it? Not at all. I mean, the title of the book is quote, the life and opinions. So there's a lot of digression. There's a lot of tangents that Stern goes on that don't necessarily seem to make sense at the time. But then he revisits them in different forms throughout the book. And it all kind of comes together. But it's more like floating in an ocean and letting it wash over you as opposed to reading a progressive narrative. You just have to give yourself over to the narrative if you're going to get through the book. And Elizabeth, there's actually two narratives going on in this story. One is the narrative, as we said, of the life of Tristram Shandy, but the author Tristram Shandy is also giving us the life of his uncle. That's right. And maybe even a third narrative, because we also get the story of him writing the book. He likes to talk often about how much work this is, writing his book. And please bear with me in this, how I'm going to write this. Sure. The adult Tristram Shandy, who's writing this novel about his life and opinions, doesn't really give us much of the story of his character, Tristram Shandy. Right. He gives us the story of him writing the story of Tristram Shandy. And I think he likes to focus so much on his uncle, too, because he gets so much of his information about his early life and even before his life from this uncle. And he so admires and thinks of him as equal to a father figure. Phil, for me, it's very important that the novel is entitled The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy. The popular novels of this time were all the life and adventures, right? We have the life and adventures of Don Quixote. We have Henry Fielding's The Life and Adventures of Tom Jones. Lawrence Stern, the author of The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, he really wanted to say something different. He didn't want a life and adventures. He wanted a life and opinions. And Phil, we do get a lot of opinions. Yeah, I, I think in a lot of ways he's lampooning the novel, the, the current form of the novel. There are points in the book where he makes references to certain conventions in the novel of that time, and he mocks them a little bit. Yes, uh, we do get frequent references to some of the novels of that time. As I've said already, he mentions Don Quixote a lot. He mentions the novel Candide. He also mentions John Locke's work on human understanding. So he brings in a lot of literary references, but as you said... I think to lampoon them a little bit, to show up some of their shortcomings. Elizabeth, would it be fair to call this a Don Quixote without swords and windmills novel? 
Yeah, at some points you wonder, where is he going and why is he doing this? And then you find yourself laughing. I mean, I think it's even more a novel of his mind and imagination than Don Quixote was. I mean, this is such a free associative novel that it makes Don Quixote look mainstream. Phil, I know in some of our earlier talks you compared this book favorably to James Joyce's Ulysses. Certainly the beginnings of techniques like free association and stream of consciousness can be found in this novel. Yes, it's a book that you can reread and certainly get different meanings from. And you could probably reread this book 10 times and it'd be a little bit different book each time. And I think part of that is because each little scene or sequence that he digresses on could be its own standalone piece, which are great in and of themselves. You just have to be able to give yourself over to that. Otherwise, you'll go crazy. There really is no plot line to follow in this novel. No. And it took me a while to surrender to that. But Elizabeth, there are plot points in this novel. Yeah. Yeah, there are. So let's pull out these plot lines and form them into some sort of linear narrative. That way our listeners will understand a little bit about the story that we do get from this novel. So let's start. Unlike Charles Dickens and David Copperfield, I don't know if you remember David Copperfield, but that novel starts, I Am Born. The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, written by Lawrence Stern, they start their novel even sooner than that. They start in the egg. Yeah. He starts the book with his conception. It's an interesting digression he makes about how when you're being conceived, everything that is happening at that point affects how you're born and what kind of person you become, which is really very funny. And it's the story of his conception that he's telling us. Yep. What is the story of his conception and how has it been passed on to him? It is a very funny story, and Tristram learns this through his uncle Toby, how his father Walter is a creature of such habits that he is known to wind the clock every first Sunday night of every month. And this is also the occasion that he takes his wife to bed. Also on the first Sunday of every month. To get these two items on his task list completed and out of the way. And this particular night, his wife interrupts the act of conception to ask him, Have you wound the clock? And that has completely interrupted his train of thought and thereby set the course of Tristram's life to an unfortunate beginning. That's right. Walter, Tristram's father, is such a creature of habit that just one little remark by his wife completely throws him off his game. Yeah. In fact, the quote is, Good God, did ever woman since the creation of the world interrupt a man with such a silly question? And really, this is the first example we get of Walter's crazy philosophical beliefs and how they tend to color his view of the world. And of course, then come the color Tristram's view of the world as well. Yeah, Walter Shandy believes that because he was so frustrated at Tristram's moment of conception, that this is going to affect Tristram's entire life and how he is raised and who he is as a person, really. That's right. Tristram and his father, Walter, believe it is from this moment on that Tristram's life of misfortune began. We could say he was ill-conceived. Indeed. And I think that really sets the tone for the book and the kind of satire that we're going to be dealing with. Not only because it's kind of a ridiculous situation, but when you think about it, it, it could be believable, which is what makes it so funny and satirical. But Elizabeth, that's not the only strike against Tristram Shandy. The next strike is soon to follow. Not only has he been ill-conceived, now he's about to be ill-formed at birth as well. Yes, at birth. It's so unfortunate. It's a comedy of errors. Downstairs, we have the father and the uncle, and then upstairs, we have the doctor and the attendants arguing. Mrs. Shandy is in a very difficult labor, and the midwife and the nurse and everybody are injuring themselves. But there's actually a funny little story as to why Tristram Shandy's mother is at home having this birth with a midwife and not safe in London with a doctor. 
This is one of those digressions that we get from Tristram Shandy as he's starting to tell us the story of his life. He hasn't even been born yet, and already we're taking a trip to London. I find this hysterical. He shares with us the legal document of their marriage. Right, the marriage of his mother and father. It's a marriage license, I think he calls it, but it's really like a prenuptial agreement, whereupon they agree how they will be handling the birth of their children and their trips to London. And what is that agreement? They agree that should she become pregnant, they can go to the big city to see the doctor that she prefers in London and receive the best medical care. But the catch is, should she ever take them to the city for a false alarm pregnancy, then Mr. Shandy has the right to say on the next occasion that he can require them to stay at home, which is an amazingly detailed prenuptial agreement, which is part of the satire, I think. Right, I think a satire on lawyers. But let's get back to Mrs. Shandy upstairs in the bedroom with the midwife. Apparently, not only has Tristan been ill-conceived, as we've said, now he's having trouble being born. Yes. So the midwife is upstairs, and she's having problems. I think it's a breech birth. And the menfolk are downstairs, Uncle Toby, Walter Shandy, and Dr. Slop. (laughs) (laughs) And Dr. Slop has this newfangled medical device called forceps. He tries them out on Uncle Toby's fist and winds up skinning Uncle Toby's knuckles. And the funny thing is that they decide to use them anyway to aid in Tristram's birth, which lead to Tristram's broken nose. Oh, boy. The situation is just so funny. As you read this, the poor woman's attended now by maybe six people total. They're cutting their fingers, they're falling down and bruising their hips, and using this faulty forcep device, yanking Tristram out. They can't tell whether it's his head or his butt. They can't tell up from down. It's really a big debacle. (laughs) Well, what was the final result of this uh, comedy of errors, shall we say? Well, the poor baby is finally born with a broken nose, and you might even add another strike against the poor kid. Not only was he ill-conceived and now ill-born, but the father has always had a terrible paranoia of short noses in his family anyway. So now this even compounds the unfortunate physical appearance of his son. You know, Elizabeth, I'm glad you brought up the story about Walter's paranoia with noses because we really should tell our listeners that throughout this story, we're getting a lot of, as we call them, digressions. When they introduce the midwife, we then get her entire backstory. He spends 25 pages telling us about the midwife. He then introduces Dr. Slop. We get another digression, and we get another 25 pages. So really, between the time of his ill conception and the time of his ill birth, we've gone through almost, I don't know, 150 pages and three volumes of our novel already. And that's why it's hard to describe, because there really is so much, and there's also so little, and it's hard to explain how funny it is, because it does take him sometimes a little while to get there. But finally, as we said, 152 pages into our novel, he's been conceived. He's finally been born. Now the next big event in his life, he needs to be named. And again, we get a comedy of errors. They think Tristram is dying because he's turning blue. Well, he has had a hard birth. Yeah, he's had a very hard birth. They're afraid that he's going to die before he's baptized, so they have to come up with a name very quickly. And Walter Shandy, the father, has been debating a name and comes up with Trismegistus, (laughs) which is a ridiculously grand name, and he thinks it's going to offset the fact that Tristram has had such a hard birth. But in the rush to baptize him, they just call him Tristram. And really, the father knows this is coming. When he gives the maid the name, he tells her, Oh, Susanna, you're a leaky vessel, and some of this will spill out. And so then, of course, she runs upstairs, and instead of remembering the whole name, all she can come up with is Tristam. 
And it's so unfortunate because the father, as he is known to have all these grand philosophies and theories of life and the way it should be, had even written an essay about the unfortunate state of the name Tristram. He did not like that name. Elizabeth, you know, I'm glad you brought up the father's philosophies again because it's right about this time that in our novel, the concept of hobby horses is brought up. Yeah. In fact, early on, Tristram goes on a tangent about hobby horses. Another tangent. Yeah. And he talks a little bit about the necessity of hobby horses, how every man has his own hobby horse that he rides, that he obsesses over in his life. There's a quote here. He says, quote, Sir, have not the wisest of men in all ages not accepting a Solomon himself? Have they not had their hobby horses, coins, cockle shells, drums, trumpets, fiddles, pallets? And it goes on in a lengthy description. Now, Elizabeth, I know you looked up the word hobby horses in the dictionary. I did, because he brings this up so often. Not only is it the model of the horse's head on a stick... Right, that's the first definition. Yes, that children will ride around on. But the later definition is a favorite hobby or a topic with which one is obsessed, a fixation. And that is how he described so many of these funny characters. They all have their obsessions, and that makes them so crazy. And that's the connection I made when you talked about Tristram Shandy's father, Walter, and his philosophizing and how he felt it was so important to be conceived in the right way, to be named the right name. That was sort of his hobby horse. It is. He is so obsessed with sometimes the thinking of the occasion that he misses the occasion. That is a great point. Uh, we'll come back to hobby horses and talk a little bit more about them as they relate to Tristram Shandy. And of course, as they relate to Uncle Toby, who, as we'd say, has the biggest hobby horse in the novel. So we'll definitely come back and talk about both of them. But now let's move on. Tristram Shandy is now not only ill-conceived, ill-born, he's now ill-named. But he's about to have one more tragedy befall him, and then he's really going to disappear from our novel, and we've already taken 400 pages to get here. Phil, do you want to tell me about this last tragedy that befalls Tristram? No, I'd rather not talk about that, Frank. Uh, you want to pass that one on to Elizabeth for now? Yeah, it's a very painful passage to read, actually. He's accidentally circumcised by a window sash. <sighs> Elizabeth? How the heck does that happen? Well, he's at the window with Susanna the maid, and the window falls. He's standing too close. Well, he's being held too close. Yes. And he brushes this off as if to say, I didn't lose but two drops of blood. It really wasn't that big of a deal. But poor Susanna has been scarred for life. She runs from the house. She can't go back in. There's tremendous arguments. And now the whole town believes this child is so ill-formed. So they solve this problem by putting him into adult pants. And really, he becomes an adult in our novel. That's it. We never meet the young Tristram again. No. The next stories we really have after we get some of Uncle Toby's story is Tristram traveling through France. That's right. And basically, that's where part one of this novel ends. We've gotten the life of Tristram Shandy up to this point, and now it takes another abrupt digression and we move into Uncle Toby's story. And that really takes the rest of the book, the last 150, 200 pages or so. But we'll take a break here, and when we come back, we'll talk about Uncle Toby's life. And we also want to talk about Uncle Toby's hobby horse, probably the largest hobby horse in this novel. But right now, you're listening to Novel Conversations. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. We'll be right back. You've got questions. We've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. 
You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Welcome back. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and today I'm having a conversation about the novel The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, written by Lauren Stern. All right, guys, before we took our break, we wrapped up the first part of our narrative, the story of Tristram Shandy and his very early misfortunes. Now, just like in the novel, we're going to take a digression and talk about his Uncle Toby. Practically the entire last third of this novel is Uncle Toby's story. Phil, do you want to start telling us uh, Uncle Toby's story? Yeah, I love Uncle Toby. He's the most tragic and funny character in that whole book, I think. His story is centered around his military career and the wound he received at the Battle of Nemour, and how his whole life then becomes about reenacting that battle and healing from his wound. Phil, are you comfortable talking about that wound, or do you want to pass that to Elizabeth as well? (laughs) It was a groin wound. Uh, Another unfortunate wound. Yeah. So in order to overcome this and heal himself, he becomes obsessed with recreating this battle. And Elizabeth, how does he recreate this battle? While he is healing, his aide suggests that they recreate this battle, and he becomes obsessed with the idea, and it grows and grows. He eventually sets the whole yard area into the troops and the barricades and everything that is involved with the battle itself. In fact, it becomes like those Civil War enactments. He's going to reenact the entire battle that caused his wound. Even though the war is still continuing. That's right. And Phil, this does become his hobby horse. Yeah, he definitely is obsessed with recreating it to the most minute detail, along with his manservant, Corporal Trim. But of course, they never get to the reenactment of the wound. We never actually find out how he was wounded, do we? No, and when the war ends and he announces to his aide, we will now retreat to England. He says, sir, we're already there. And I've got to tell you that these scenes really stay funny. They never become pathetic. They stay funny and satirical. They are really funny. Now, what's the rest of Uncle Toby's story? Doesn't he become enamored with the widow Wadman? Yes, the neighbor has observed the making of this reenactment. She's fallen in love with him. He's unaware of it for quite some time. Eventually, she almost tricks him into looking at her. She says she has something in her eye. Yeah, she occasionally comes out to the reenactment site and casually bumps into Uncle Toby in order to seduce him, while feigning interest in the reenactment site. Elizabeth, is this going to be a shandy who finally has a successful moment? No, it's quite sad. Oh, what happens? Well, Uncle Toby and his assistant agree they're going to win the favors of the widow and her assistant, and they set out to win their affections. She finally asks him about his wound. And there's a rumor in town about this wound. Yeah, there's a rumor that Uncle Toby's impotent. And when she asks him, where were you injured? She wants to know if he can ever have children. He wants to show exactly where he was wounded on his map. (laughs) So here's another comedy of errors. And it's also very funny that Uncle Toby and his manservant turn this into a military campaign. And the use of military language and the seduction is really, really funny. And eventually they think they've conquered these women. But in the end, they don't. They don't. Because he never really tells her exactly how and where he's wounded or explains to her if they can be married and have a family together. So she just gives up on him. And essentially, that's where our novel ends. Instead of with a bang, it ends with, uh, dare I say, a groin injury. (laughs) 
which is apropos for the entire book. And again, we should remind our listeners, the story of the widow Wadman is another one of those digressive stories that are peppered throughout this novel, where Lawrence Stern, through his author, Tristram Shandy, takes, I don't know, 35, 40 pages to tell us the story about this widow. And that story really has nothing to do with the life or opinions of Tristram Shandy. Now, of course, tangentially, it has a bit to do with the life of Uncle Toby, but it's just one more story, just like we get the story of the midwife, we get the story of the parson, we get the story of Dr. Slop. We get these full character studies, and yet nah, they don't really have too much to do with what is essentially, if I say it, a plotless novel. But you do get a sense of who Tristram Shandy is through these people, because he himself has his hobby horse, which is this book telling of his life, that he is, in fact, very much like all of these people who have their own hobby horses. Phil, it sounds like what you're saying is that these stories that I'm willing to dismiss as just merely digressions really are somewhat important to our novel. They need to be there, even though they seem to us on first reading to be interruptions. Yes. Like Walter Shandy has a digression within Tristram Shandy's digression. <laughs> so there's all these <laughs> levels to the book that work. And I think that's what makes it so interesting and readable. And funny. He goes off on a digression of how Uncle Toby won't hurt a fly. He catches a fly at dinner and opens the window and lets him go. And then later on, Uncle Toby's reenacting a war. But it's a fake war. He's not actually out in battle. So it does tell you a little bit more about the character, and it makes it funnier to read. You know, one of the funny digressions for me is the story of the parson. The parson, uh, his last name is York. And throughout our novel, we're led to believe that this is the great, great, great descendant of Shakespeare's York. And it does add to the novel. Maybe it doesn't add to the narrative, but it clearly adds to our story. And that's on his headstone. Alas, poor York. <laughs> and that's actually one of my favorite parts of the book, the dying scene with York, which is really funny and actually very sad. You know, within this comedy, there's a lot of tragedy. That's what makes it so funny. This is funny because there's tragedy interspersed within a lot of these comic pieces. And guys, even though we attempted to try to pull out the narratives within this novel and try to make them somewhat linear... The fact is, they're not linear. The fact that all these other stories do get involved in our main story really does complete the novel. And that's why a second read is really helpful. It is. You can enjoy it so much more and find so much more of the humor. Absolutely. There were just little gems throughout the entire novel, not only describing his life, but the opinions really are both ridiculous and often insightful. Phil, I'm glad you mentioned Tristram Shandy's opinions, because as Elizabeth said, I think that's the third narrative line of our novel. It's what Tristram Shandy, the author, is saying to us throughout his book. Obviously, we're not getting too much about his life, but we do get plenty of his opinions. His opinions about lawyers, his opinions about doctors, and certainly his opinions about writing and writers. So let's pick up with that. Isn't Tristram Shandy's hobby horse writing and writers? Well, actually, this book is his hobby horse. And throughout the course of the book, he engages you in a conversation. And he tells you that he's going to be going on a digression. And he asks you to forgive him and explains away some of his rambling in certain ways. These are conversations he's having with you, the reader, as the author, Tristram Shandy. Yes. He chooses this topic and then plums it satirically until it's over and then goes back to the narrative and says, now I'm going to go back and tell you what we were talking about before. So for him, everything's fair game. Right. As he says, before I interrupted you to tell you about the prenuptial agreement between the parents, he gives us 25 pages of the prenuptial agreement. I think he had to comment on the writers, on the lawyers, on these prenuptial agreements, on these licenses. 
and I enjoy when he breaks to talk to you, the reader. He refers to the reader as madam or sir or your honor, and it's different each time. So he's supposing a different person is reading each time. He'll often say, what? Didn't you catch that? Well, we'll go back and reread that chapter. You know, and not only that, but he also reminds you of where he was. He warns you he's going to take a digression now, but he'll come back to it. At one point, I think he tells you, I'm sorry I'm taking this digression. Don't blame me. Blame my pen. I don't know where it's going. <laughs> yeah, he also really mocks the style of the day. If you read novels from around this period, a lot of the paragraphs begin with, if it pleases the reader, or dear and a gentle reader. That's right. And so, you know, as he is addressing the reader, he really trusts the reader. And he's really making fun of that whole convention of addressing the reader. And maybe he thought it was kind of a condescending way. And I think that's one of the reasons why we get some of these little stories. There's this quick little story about his trip to France. He doesn't really want to tell us about France. He wants to mock the travel writing of the day. In fact, I have a quote here from Tristram Shandy, and I quote, Now, before I quit Calais, a travel writer would say, It would not be amiss to give some account of it. And he goes on to say, Now I think it's very much a myth that a man cannot go quietly through a town and let it alone when it does not meddle with him but that he must be turning about and drawing his pen at every candle he crosses, end quote. There's a point to where he is talking about writing, and he says, quote, it's even more pardonable to trespass against truth than beauty, end quote. You know, these little small details are what make this book readable. You know, and another one for me that works very well is at the beginning of volume five. He has two quotes at the beginning of the volume, uh, and one of them is a quote from Erasmus, and I think one is a quote from Ovid. And then right when he starts the chapter, he complains about authors who borrow quotes from other authors. <laughs> yeah, that is great. That's a good one. He also observes in their travels as they pass these herds and herds of donkeys. He says, did you think the world itself, sir, had contained such a number of jackasses? But he does not use it as one word. He actually capitalizes the J and the A <laughs> and then goes on to, of course, satirize attorneys, doctors, men and women in their relationships, travel writing and other writing. I think he's really saying everybody's ridiculous. Everybody's a jackass. <laughs> I mean, there's points where he says, here are the rules. I know the rules, but I don't really care. At times, I'm going to tell you that these are the rules, but I'm not going to always follow them. And I'm going to basically do whatever I want. And he does do whatever he wants. He skips chapter numbers, and then he will remind you, I skipped a chapter there because you weren't ready to hear that tale yet, but I'll tell you what would have been in that chapter had I written it. <laughs> and if something is not appropriate to be told, he uses rows and rows of asterisks to let you fill in the blanks. You know, another quote of his is, the more I write, the more I have to write. All right, let's move into our last segment, and what I'd like from both of you now is... What made this a book worth reading for you, Phil? Well, one of the things that we've touched on but haven't talked a lot about, this is a great book about family. And it's about how they've all come to form this one character and influence Tristram Sandy and how family coexists. We all know that families are kind of crazy in their own way. And this family clearly was crazy in their own way. Uh-huh, yeah. The satire is great, but I think the heart of it is that it's a story about a family. Elizabeth, what makes this a book worth reading for you? Despite the lengthy nature of the novel, I had no idea that it was going to be so involved or have the uniqueness that it did. So it was a nice surprise for me. 
Certainly the structure of this novel makes it challenging to read, but the stories and what Lawrence Stern actually had to say makes it very enjoyable. There's so much wisdom and insight in this book. You have to think about it and think, is he being funny or is he not being funny? But it really doesn't matter because it affects you in a way that's fairly deep. And he throws it in with the satire, which makes the satire even more satirical and which makes the insights even more insightful. So there's this constant play between all those elements that are really quite brilliant, I think very funny, and some great observations of men and women of the time, which I enjoyed to read. You know, for me, what makes this a book worth reading is the satire. It's the spoofing and the parody of lawyers and their documents, of doctors and their newfangled inventions, of philosophers and their hobby horses, and clearly of writers. The amount of satire on the writing of the day and the popular novels of the day For me, that just made it very, very enjoyable to read. Absolutely. And the military and the war and their battles and their formalities. All right. Obviously, this is over a 600-page book. We've mentioned there's lots of characters, some of whom we didn't get a chance to even mention. Lots and lots of great moments of parody and insight. Phil, do you have another moment you want to share with us? I do. And this is a very funny book. But there's also a lot of tragedy in it. And this struck me as a beautiful scene. And this is the death scene of Parson Yorick, who is, again, presumably the descendant of Shakespeare's Yorick. Right. Eugenius, his friend, comes to visit him on his deathbed, and the quote is like this. A few hours before Yorick breathed his last, Eugenius stepped in with an intent to take his last sight and last farewell of him. Upon his drawing Yorick's curtain and asking how he felt himself, Yorick, looking up in his face, took hold of his hand, And after thanking him for the many tokens of his friendship to him, for which he said, if it was their fate to meet hereafter, he would thank him again and again. He told him he was within a few hours of giving his enemies the slip forever, end quote. That is a good line. I just think it's a beautiful description of dying, giving his enemies the slip forever. I agree. Elizabeth, do you have a line or a moment you want to share? I do. I enjoyed so much the tricks he would play on us as readers. I find myself often saying, oh, he got me again. I believed him for this, and then he led me somewhere else. In particular, he opens a chapter saying, quote, I wish I could write a chapter upon sleep, end quote. And now I think that's so funny because he's asleep, of course. How can he write this? But he actually succeeds in doing so. He goes on to say, quote, It's a fine subject, and yet, as I find as it is, I would undertake to write a dozen chapters upon buttonholes, end quote. He goes off a little bit more. He describes minutia of clothing and sleep, and at the end of the chapter, he says, quote, and so much for sleep, end quote. And he's actually done it. He went to sleep. That is a short chapter, but it is funny. He's done it. Those are the small little things you enjoy. Even though we've talked about how he'll take 25 pages to describe something to us, you get all the little treats in there along the way. You have to actually read the pages in between the pages. You do. So, Frank, do you have a favorite line or moment? Elizabeth, I'm glad you asked. In fact, I have a couple of lines here I'd like to read. And actually, this is Tristram Shandy, the author again, talking to us as his readers. And this is very, very early on, I think chapter 6. And he's telling us what to expect. The quote is, You must have a little patience. I have undertaken, you see, to write not only my life, but my opinions also, hoping and expecting that your knowledge of my character and of what kind of a mortal I am would give you a better relish for the other. As you proceed further with me, the slight acquaintance which is now beginning betwixt us will grow into familiarity, 
And that, unless one of us is at fault, will terminate in friendship, end quote. And I think this did terminate in friendship. I struggled a little bit with the reading at the beginning myself, and then I read it a second time. First time, I just sort of took it all in. The second time, I put the pieces together and formed it into a novel in my mind. And absolutely, I have made a friendship with Lawrence Stern and with Tristram Shandy. And I remember reading that and liking it. He says we'll be friends. And if neither of us are at fault, we'll come out friends at the end. And certainly I did. I hope you guys did as well. Absolutely. Indeed. I feel like I could go back and read this again. Okay, I think that'll end our conversation today about the life and opinions of Tristram Shandy. I would like to thank my guests today, Elizabeth Flood and Phil Setnick. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, Frank. I loved this book discussion. You guys are very welcome, and it was a pleasure. Thanks again. You've been listening to Novel Conversations. Novel Conversations is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. For more information about upcoming Novel Conversations, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Or go to our website at evergreenpodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps. Novel Conversations is produced by Julie Fink, and our audio engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. A special thanks to our executive producer, Joan Andrews, and our researchers, Kate O'Neill and Kevin Kerwin. And I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. Until next time, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.